tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hi, it's Fraser here. If you're a regular listener to this podcast or a regular reader of Spiked, I hope you'll agree that Spiked's message is more necessary than ever. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. By donating to Spiked, you're helping us challenge the myriad attacks on free speech and the illiberalism of identity politics. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way you can support the show by checking out some of the deals we're able to pass your way. But donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then do please consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 per month can go a long way. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spikes-online.com and hitting the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, cancel culture the BBC, and the return of pubs. Several prominent writers, academics and celebrities signed an open letter calling for an end to so-called cancel culture. In today's culture, just a simple social media post from years ago can prevent you from getting a job. Author J.K. Rowling has defended her right to speak out on trans issues without fear of abuse. Well, they say that the free exchange of ideas is central for a liberal society. Around 150 writers, intellectuals and public figures have signed an open letter decrying the rise of cancel culture. The signatories include authors like J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie and Margaret Atwood, alongside a diverse range of intellectuals and political figures like Noam Chomsky and Francis Fukuyama. The letter seemed to instantly prove its point. Within hours of its publication, a colleague of Matt Iglesias, one of the signatories, denounced his support for free speech as a threat to her safety. One of the signatories of the letter quickly apologised for associating herself publicly with the other signatories. Meanwhile, many of the letter's opponents pronounced that there was simply no such thing as cancel culture at all. Andrew Doyle is joining us down the line for this section. Andrew is a comedian, spiked columnist and also host of the brand new podcast, Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. Andrew, first of all, do you want to tell us a bit about Culture Wars and what listeners can expect? Yes, so I'm going to have a different guest every month. And the idea is that we're going to talk about what's been going on. As we all know, the the Culture Wars have sort of exploded into the mainstream now. So it is having an impact on everyone, whether you're part of the the arts or the media or politics or, or just... Uh, you know, living your everyday life. It's absolutely impossible to avoid now. So there's lots of um, scope to talk about it. And also I'd like to get other people's views on it. So uh, that's that's the whole idea. Great. And let's kick off this discussion by, you know, thinking about this question. I mean, what do you make of this idea, Andrew, that cancel culture just doesn't exist? 
it's such a ludicrous idea that cancel culture doesn't exist. Like, we shouldn't even be having that conversation. I think anyone who is making that statement must be being disingenuous or they simply, I mean, I hate to say it, but they just haven't been paying attention. I think part of the problem is that they take it literally and they say, well, cancel culture doesn't, no one's being cancelled. All that's happening is people are being called out for their bad behaviour. Well, firstly, I know that a lot of social justice activists have problems with metaphor, but no one is suggesting that they are literally being cancelled. Cancel culture is a metaphor, which means the practice of systematically attacking someone, attacking their livelihood and reputation and denigrating them as much as possible so that they lose money and lose security and effectively destroying them in that way. So it's uh, it's the modern form of a witch hunt. Not only is it real, it's commonplace. It's everywhere. It seems to be the mm-hmm. initial reaction. And I noticed some quite prominent commentators like Owen Jones and James O'Brien saying it doesn't exist, partly because they are complicit in it. I suppose that's the reason why they might say that. Their view is also that they are just, as they say, criticising and that, that people want free speech without consequence. That seems to be the thing that Owen Jones constantly says. I know of literally nobody who thinks that free speech comes without consequence. Literally nobody. What we mean by um, consequence, I suppose, is if the consequence is destroying someone's life, attacking them physically, going to the police, getting them arrested, having them lose their job, then actually, though, that's not free speech. But certainly criticism, ridicule, all of those things, they are fine consequences. Calling someone out when you think what they've done is bad, that's fine too. But that's not the same thing as cancel culture. And I wish people would stop pretending that they don't understand the difference. Tom? Well, I thought what was really revealing in the backlash to that Harper's letter was I think it just showed how weak and ridiculous the kind of cancel culture denier argument really is. You know, first of all, it was just really stupid. So they've all settled on this argument that it's basically just rich people complaining about being criticised, as Andrew says, despite the fact that that letter was signed by Salman Rushdie. You know, they're acting as if the fatwa was like a strongly worded letter. So that is ridiculous on the face of it. Really disingenuous insofar as, again, if you actually read that letter, and if you read what many of us who have criticised cancel culture have said, it's like the problem is not really the people at the top, it's people further down the line. It's the people who don't have these big platforms, who aren't JK Rowling, another signatory who is uncancelable, which are the real problems for this. And the other thing is that there's there's so much kind of gaslighting in this debate. I hate that phrase, but there's no other word for it. As far as you've got people like Owen Jones, who has been like kind of witch finder general in a lot of these culture war discussions, basically spends most of his time these days running around Twitter trying to get people sacked for various things. You know, very involved in the Toby Young campaign. More recently was trying to get someone who worked at Oxford sacked over an offhand comment he made in response to Ash Sarker, turning around and saying that cancel culture is a complete myth. You know, so that shows us a little bit about what we're up against. I think Andrew's made this point before, but I think it just shows that with a lot of these people, you can't really engage them in rational argument and debate. I mean, we should, but to the ends of kind of exposing and ridiculing them, because there's so much disingenuousness in this, because of the fact they're basically trying to cover up for the fact that they are pro-censorship. You know, Mm. they're trying to suggest that this is a moral panic, that it's being over-egged. But the logical conclusion of a lot of their arguments is, oh, at best, it's cancel culture doesn't exist because we haven't been able to get everyone sacked who we wanted to be sacked over recent <laughs> years. You know, that was almost what it boils down to. So I think that was really, really striking. But at the same time, it just shows how weak the response to a lot of this is, really, um, and how easy it is to expose. It's difficult because they hold a lot of sway. They hold a lot of power. I think you definitely saw that in the fact that even some signatories to the letter have since distanced themselves from it in part in response to the backlash, I'm sure. But it does show us how, at least, how weak and flimsy a lot of the arguments made by these people are. Ella? And of course, some people have distanced themselves from the letter simply because J.K. Rowling signed it, which is the most pathetic, cowardly thing that I've ever heard in my life, no matter what you think about J.K. Rowling. I mean, the interesting thing about the Harper's letter is that Jonathan Frieden made this point in The Guardian in their sort of response to the letter. But it's almost banal, he says, you know, because it really isn't making 
massive demands. It's not sticking two fingers up to cancel culture. It's sort of almost pleading in its tone when saying, please, you know, writers need the space to think and experiment. Please, can we just hang on a minute and think about what we're doing to free expression? It wasn't anyone throwing a bomb into the whole debate about censorship. And yet the response was so unhinged, you know, with people claiming that actually this was a kind of what it really was, was sort of a coded attack on minorities and by people using their privilege to say that you weren't allowed to criticize. And as Andrew says, the whole point of freedom of speech is not to put your statement out there and then expect there to be no pushback. The whole point is debate, as we on Spiked have said, ad nauseum. So (laughs) it means if you think what I've said is awful, the whole point of freedom of speech is you're able to tell me that I'm a total whack job if if that's what you think. So there's a huge amount of sort of disingenuous discussion around this. But it also made me think, I mean, there are so many letters flying around at the moment, some good, one which you were involved with, Andrew, the Don't Divide Us Now letter, which went out in The Spectator, which was actually saying a very similar thing to the Harper's letter, but was more talking about the debate around race. But there was also this letter that came out from the Linguistic Society of America against Steven Pinker, which, you know, again, was one of these letters that's denouncing Pinker, asking that he's been taking off this list because of his alleged terrible views. But the really interesting thing about that one was it had this quote in it, which I think just so perfectly sums up the whole cancel culture mantra, where it said, we want to note that we have no desire to judge Dr. Pinker's actions in moral terms or claim to know what his aims are. So there you have it. It's just, we actually don't understand his (laughs) views. We don't want to morally judge them. Fingers in ears, we just want him gone. And so there's no way in which you can take that viewpoint seriously. That is absolutely childish and ridiculous. And so all you have to do is say, well, we're sticking up for free expression and actually we're not going to pander to this kind of crap anymore. Andrew, I mean, the free speech problem has been around for years, decades, centuries, millennia even. I suppose people might want to ask, well, why now? Why has this letter been signed now? Do you think that in recent years or recent weeks even, the problem has got worse? Oh, it's got immeasurably worse, I think, for the last few weeks. I mean, we have now gone into this culture of total conformity where people are absolutely terrified. I cannot tell you, I keep getting messages. I keep getting emails. I had one yesterday from someone who works in the NHS in Scotland who said, I'm absolutely terrified. I can't speak out at work. I get this from teachers all the time. Obviously, I used to be a teacher, so I know teachers. There's a sudden move to push identity politics in a school policy and pastoral care. There are whole packs going home to parents, warning them, saying, don't say that your child isn't racist. Your child is racist and this is why and this is the way you should talk to your children about it. This very politicised, very ideologically driven stuff. People are absolutely terrified. And this is something that the Harper's Letter did uh, allude to when they talk about people who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement. Right. I had a conversation with an actor friend of mine the other day who uh, was contacted by her agent because she hadn't posted in support of Black Lives Matter on Twitter. And the agent said, that is compulsory. You have to do that if you want to remain with this agency. Right. So people are actually being told they have to make statements that they may or may not want. Even if you're not very political, you have to make these statements. This is creating a really, really toxic culture. And I think we need to address that. Have you always wanted to visit a different country, but didn't want to feel like an outsider because you didn't know the language? Babbel is here to help you learn that language. I've been working on my beginner's Spanish with the iPhone app on the off chance that I might get a week in the sun this summer, and it's been really fun. 
Babbel has a clear and simple interface guiding you through your learning journey in a funny and smooth way. It's designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks using daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. Babbel teaches real life conversations. You learn through interactive dialogues. Speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. The lessons are lovingly crafted by over a hundred language experts. That's real people, not translation machines. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. The teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all your devices. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free whenever you buy a six-month subscription. Just make sure you use the promo code SPIKED. So, Go to babble.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code SPIKED on your six-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot co dot UK slash play and the promo code is SPIKED. The BBC has always had something of a liberal bias, but over the past few weeks, it's gone into woke overdrive. Recently, the BBC has produced podcasts telling old white women how not to be racist Karens. It now hosts opinion pieces on the ABCs of allyship in relation to Black Lives Matter, and it recently announced £100 million for a new diversity initiative. At the same time, it's cutting millions on regional and local programming, and it's even rumoured to be scrapping Politics Live, its flagship daytime politics show. Ella, what the hell is going on? Well, exactly. The BBC was always, and I think we all knew it was the broadcaster of the establishment. And I think in the past, while it might have had its limitations, at least it produced high level, often highbrow programmes and commentary. And you might have criticised it for being pale, male and stale, but the content of the kind of programs that we've seen fall away over the years mm. was far more engaging and intellectually stimulating and open-minded than the stuff we're getting today. And of course, the problem is that the establishment has changed. So the thing that the BBC has to be now is in line with woke, you know, in line with everything that's politically correct, ticking all the boxes, not just for diversity, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with having more programs centered around things that are relevant to black people. But this sort of hectoring, lecturing tone, when essentially most of the time you turn it on, and whether it's about race or sexism or climate change, especially on something like Radio 4, which I'm a big fan of, most of the programs there are trying to get you to think a certain way to fit in line with the pre-approved views of the day. And so it's it's actually the biggest criticism of the BBC at the moment is that it's becoming exceedingly boring. But some of the examples that you raised are fascinating, particularly the one of the podcast talking about Karens, which has been royally mocked and righteously mocked on social media because it is hugely embarrassing. But the really interesting thing in that is you had two very well-off women with sort of characteristically plummy accents, basically talking down to the rest of us and also posing as the kind of arbiters of what is right and what is proper when talking about racial justice. And funnily enough, one of them, Amelia de Moldenberg, 
has made her career, this is the irony of it, her whole kind of skit is, oh, isn't it so funny that I'm a posh girl that eats chicken nuggets in chicken shops? No one really eats chicken nuggets in chicken shops. Anyway, that's a poor bit of research right there. (laughs) And how hilarious that I talk to these black rappers and we really don't have anything in common because I'm so intellectual and they're so not. And that's the way in which she's made her career. So the idea that this woman would be able to stand up and tell us how to not be racist or how to not evidence our white privilege is laughable. You know, this is the kind of weirdness of the BBC at the moment for me, which is that you could have something that's attempting to be so obviously woke. I hate that word, but it's the only word around for it, woke. And yet it completely misses the mark because it's just so embarrassing. I don't want to hark back to the sort of times of when everyone at the BBC looked like and sounded like and thought like Andrew Neil. But Jesus, can we have a bit more of that and a bit less of this sort of new generation, which doesn't seem to be able to produce anything clever or funny or interesting? Tom? What's so interesting about it as well is that um, this is really, in a way, their attempt to be more relevant. Mm. You know, they're kind of confusing woke politics with the BAME population, you know, which is ridiculous given that on the survey data we kind of have for political correctness in the US or here, you know, it tends to be white upper middle class people who most attach themselves to this very divisive identity politics. You know, they've completely confused the two and it really speaks to how, you know, detached they are from those kinds of concerns. I think, as you mentioned in your intro phrase and also as you write, wrote about on Spike this week, the fact that this uh, particular podcast in the rounds and causing a lot of backlash was also coming into the context of these 25 million proposed cuts to regional broadcasting you know even the rumors around ditching politics live really does show you their kind of priorities because if you were more interested in actually trying to b- bring the bbc closer to people's priorities and having good regional broadcast stuff which is exactly the sort of thing that the bbc is supposed to be able to provide because mm. it's not purely about what the market is demanding even if these things aren't necessarily profitable you provide them because they're a good public service these are precisely the things that are getting cut meanwhile you know you have podcasts like this as well as the diversity drive which you've also written about you know this hundred million more for more programming and all the rest of it in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. It just shows how kind of skewed their priorities are. And I think that the embrace of woke politics at the BBC also, I think, speaks to a problem that it's had for quite a long time, which is whilst there has always been a kind of paternalism to the idea of the BBC, you know, the idea is there for the kind of moral betterment of everyone else um, by, you know, providing them with great culture and information and all the rest of it. But at the very least, it was a kind of more universalistic project at first you know anyone can appreciate opera anyone can appreciate more highbrow culture etc whereas now it's embrace of previously kind of more multicultural politics now this more degraded form of woke politics the idea that a long identitarian lives you break up the public and serve them in their little silos you give them the information or the the sort of thing that they want they're undermining all of that so it does raise the question of not only was this particular thing that got rinsed on Twitter ridiculous and people do wonder why um, this is being made on everyone else's dime, but if the BBC is, as it is at the moment, coming under criticism, it has to make a case for itself, it's really undermining the positive aspects to it. You know, the fact that it was more universal, the fact that it was there to provide things that other people couldn't, the fact that it's just trying to become like BuzzFeed Mark II, I think is just going to hasten its irrelevance, even though it thinks that this is their way to become more relevant, which is interesting. I think that's the great irony. And, and as you said, you know, it really has lost any sense of kind of a universal mission to educate, inform and entertain. And now it is just treating groups as segments, talking down to people, assuming that the, you know, the great unwashed are racist or, you know, often environmentally unfriendly as uh, is, is one of their other big focuses. And you can kind of understand why people have had enough of that. Now, I, I think the BBC 
could go back to its roots. It could discover the abilities it's want, it once had, and it could make fantastic documentaries, interesting films, all, the, all, all those all those things that it has made over the past few years. That is entirely possible for it to go back to. But you just get the sense that not only are they not interested in that, but they don't even realise how wrong they're going. I mean, some of the stuff that has been put out in the past few weeks, I would have thought an intern would have raised a question about, you know, is that really right for us as an impartial broadcaster to call everyone racist? Or do we really think that, you know, there was one news item that was all about the body positivity movement and how the body positivity movement isn't inclusive enough. You might think someone would have raised the question, is that really news? (laughs) A, A child probably knows that, but I get the impression that the people who run the BBC at the moment are so kind of stuck in this kind of woke way of thinking they don't even see why that might be a problem or why why it might irritate people or or why it might just bore people if, if nothing else i think it's also become a bit in some ways a bit of a political football like the you know the whole row about bbc bias is really infuriating because like pick a side both people who are right leaning and people who are left leaning claim that there's bbc bias which you know you could say is an argument to say that it's actually doing its job of being unbiased because it's pissing off everyone left, right and centre. But I think more broadly, it's that it's not just a case that this institution, the BBC, has a desire to have a liberal prejudice and make shit programmes. It's more a case that, you know, what we've been talking about in this podcast and in many, many podcasts before is that the push to adhere to a kind of politically correct, lecturing, hectoring, woke means of communication is taking over. And we see this most keenly in the media. And the thing that I always argue about with people who really hate the BBC for, you know, in some cases, righteous reasons, because of, for example, the way they often talked about Brexit in a kind of quite a biased terms, is that there are other channels that aren't that great. I mean, Channel 4 is <laughs> really not that great when it comes to sort of objective, interesting broadcasting. So just getting rid of the issue of a state broadcast isn't going to solve all the problems. The bigger thing is, why is it that an institution that's so well-respected and still is well-respected in terms of its global broadcasting, and its international programs are still high up there and respected for worldwide, why has it allowed itself to succumb to this really quite marginal and censorious trend in British politics, in Western politics. Why has that happened? And can that be saved? Because I think it can be if some people in the BBC, just as you say, Fraser, take a stand and get back to or move forward to a new form of open-minded broadcasting. I think the one thing I'd say as well was that it would be a bit, little bit different if you, for instance, had the BBC going around doing this stuff at the edges, you know, putting out these silly little videos, putting out these BuzzFeed-like kind of magazine articles. But at the same time, you know, even there, there was kind of vestige of balance. You know, no one's saying that they're just, you know, woke opinions have no place on the BBC. Of course they would, you know, or that liberal opinions more broadly have no place on the BBC. But it's the fact that it's even these biases are creeping into what should be the objective news programming. You know, we saw back during the Dominic Cummings scandal, obviously Emily Maitlis on Newsnight launching in into a kind of Bill O'Reilly style rant, frankly, against <laughs> Dominic Cummings. You know, any any kind of vestige of um, objectivity completely done away with there. There was actually complaints upheld against that program. More recently, there was a Radio Four report about the David Starkey controversy, um, which referred to Darren Grimes's YouTube channel, who's a conservative YouTuber, as a safe space for racists and homophobes and all the rest of it. Which was a quote I think they lifted from Pink News, which is completely not representative of what that show is whatsoever. So there is a kind of tendency that even in the supposedly core objective 
news broadcasting, the stuff that is really supposed to be the core of what the BBC makes the case for itself off the back of, all of these biases are creeping in. They are confusing their opinions with facts. They are confusing objective journalism with their view on the world. Mm. And that's something which is going to make the BBC, as I say, making a case for itself far more difficult because this is not just about some mishaps on the BBC News website or putting out some stuff that turned out to be a bit naff and a bit woke. It goes far, far deeper than that. Recently, I've been enjoying a course on the foundations of Western civilization on The Great Courses Plus. The course has been teaching me 600 years of European history in a way that goes beyond the usual story of kings, queens, lords and ladies to give us a real insight as to how people lived and what they believed and how those ideas have helped to shape our world today. I'm excited to tell you about The Great Courses Plus because I know you'll love it too. The streaming service has an extensive course library and you can use it to learn about any topic imaginable. You can enhance your cooking skills, understand your finances, improve your response to stress and anxiety and so much more. All of the content is objective and fact-based and it's easy to access anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. With the app, you can listen to your chosen course just as you would this podcast. You can also stream The Great Courses Plus from your phone, desktop, or even your smart TV. So, don't wait any longer. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Spiked podcast listeners can get a full month of unlimited access for free. To start your free month trial, sign up today using our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Last weekend, the pubs opened in Britain for the first time in four months, in the most significant easing of lockdown restrictions yet. The media, the police and the health service were bracing themselves for carnage on what would come to be dubbed Super Saturday. In the end, things were a lot quieter than expected, but that didn't stop the tsunami of snobbery directed at pubgoers, who, as we've come to expect during the pandemic, were labelled as selfish louts. Nor did it stop the prognostications of doom, death and despair that have greeted every other easing of the lockdown so far. Tom, what are your thoughts on Super Saturday? I thought it was just so striking that you know in the run-up to this all of the lockdown fanatics in particular going absolutely nuts you know they were talking about it just being absolute carnage you know you had hospital bosses you know warning A&E about it being like New Year's Eve the police saying that they were expecting a a month full of New Year's Eves in terms of trouble and just the reality being so so different you know you you even had the Guardian that originally was kind of you know fear-mongering a lot about this and how it was going to spread Covid um, having to admit that its fears were unfounded that was really striking. But as you say, the other thing that was striking about it was that still didn't stop the sneering and the snobbery that was unleashed by, you know, a few instances of people going out and having a good time for themselves. You know, obviously there was the images from Soho, loads of people packed into Soho and people, you know, suggesting this might be a problem for, for COVID. But what was interesting, um, and you highlighted this on Spike this week, was even people enjoying what was obviously a socially distanced drink mm. were still kind of sneered at. You know, there was this bloke in um, Manchester who was interviewed by someone from the Manchester Evening News, I think it was. It was a great quote, you know, he'd stayed up all night because he was working didn't go to bed went straight in there to have his first pint of 
Carling said it tasted like angel's piss on the tip of his tongue. Very funny. <laughs> but the sneering in response to this was so incredible. You know, despite the fact he was sat on a table by himself more than two metres away from anyone else. And I think it just sort of showed, and we've seen this time and time again, whenever anyone goes to the beach, whenever there was too many people in the park, the only exception, of course, being the BLM protest, which for complicated reasons are... are COVID secure, apparently. <laughs> we see this time and time again. And I think it's one of those things which is worth pointing out is the fact that the lockdown fanaticism and the shaming and the COVID idiot stuff is just another expression of a certain section of society who just loathe the masses and ordinary people. There's a reason that the FBP set has so perfectly morphed itself into the lockdown fanatic set. There's a reason for that is because it's not going too far to say that the reason these people have such a problem with democracy is because they have a problem with people mm. at the end of the day. They see a load of people in Soho enjoying themselves and they can't help but see just a kind of vector of disease. And I think there is something kind of significant to that. And the fact that you've seen so many commentators as well, who in recent months, it was almost getting to the point where they would just see other people in public space, get upset by it and come up with a justification later. You know, I remember Christian Guru Murphy from Channel 4 complaining that there were too many couples shopping together in his local supermarket. <laughs> that was some <laughs> horrendous problem. So, um, awful yeah, people. I think uh, <laughs> awful people. I think it just shows what underlies a lot of this, which is, to be honest, not really a considered understanding or approach to um, how to avoid a second wave, or whatever it is that these people claim to be upset about. It's just that I think the lockdown has only given them a firmer sense um, that they're just kind of quite repulsed by people, particularly the lower orders who wanted to go out and enjoy a drink for the first time in three months. I think that's right. We have to knock the idea on the head that this response has anything to do with science or anything to do with the coronavirus. I mean, we've seen all across Europe, the lockdown has been eased without problems. There hasn't been rise in cases or, or deaths, even in Greece and Holland and Germany, they've started opening the brothels for Christ's sake. Things really are going back to normal without trouble. And the same in Britain, you know, we've seen every time there's been a move towards a slight easing of the restrictions, you get the howls of despair that, you know, people are going to die and it's so selfish and, and disgusting. And yet the, you know, the rise in cases just doesn't materialize. Right. We don't know, obviously, what effect Super Saturday is going to have, but I suspect given that actually it wasn't anywhere near as raucous as um, people imagined. It probably isn't going to have a big effect on on COVID. I mean, as you say, Tom, this is purely about, it, it's expressing two things. It's expressing snobbery and it's expressing puritanism. Ella? That was the thing that I thought was that I thought Super Saturday was going to be a lot more super or sick covered. You know, I thought there was going to be people rolling around in the streets, but there wasn't. It was actually, you know, the reason why people were sharing that picture from Soho so much, because it was one of the few examples where the whole opening of pubs and reopening of social life had been taken to an excess where, yes, you might say, okay, this much of a gathering of a crowd might be a bit of a problem in, in the case of spreading of infection. But like, you know, even anecdotally, I went to the pub and it was a pub that a lot of people go to in and around Homerton. Very orderly queue, people sitting on the streets, keeping their distance, really nice atmosphere um, and everyone very happy and wanting to take selfies, picking up their pints at the bar and it was great. And the, the thing that really upset me actually about the sort of preemptive response to Super Saturday was not only were people claiming to be worried about the spread of infection, but there was also this sort of line that lots of high profile commentators and journalists were taking, which was, why on earth would I celebrate when people are still dying? Mm. You know, how heartless could you be to even raise a glass, you know, at home, let alone in a pub when people are still dying? And 
that is just so miserable because, and it's denying the fact that people have been living in real misery for months. You know, many, many Mm. people in this country haven't seen another person socially for a very long time. And so what kind of a horrible party pooper do you have to be to say that people should feel guilty about embracing, you know, if not physically, if not metaphorically, an ability to come back together with their friends over a pint? I mean, pubs aren't important just because they have drink. Pubs are important in many places, you know, outside of London, most importantly, as places where people can gather and be social. And they often stand as centers of communities. You know, pubs often are places where things happen other than drinking, you know, Mm. clubs meet up in some places, children's groups hang out, you know, the reopening of these institutions, central parts of British life should be celebrated. I just can't see why anyone would be so miserable as to deny people the ability to have some sunshine and happiness Mm. in what has been four months of hell. And it's also yet another kind of sneer that is not backed up by the science. Yes, people are still dying of COVID, but, you know, for the past two weeks, all causes of excess mortality have been lower than the five-year average. So, you know, things are coming back to normal. And at some point, people are just going to have to let it go. Mm. If, if anything, the worry is that not, things aren't quite going back to normal as quick as we might like, mm. you know, because there was a YouGov survey that came out after the weekend that pointed out that it was only around 5% of people who said they actually went out over the weekend, went to the pub over the weekend. And that's one of the things that's so strange that the lockdown fanatics cry blue murder. Yet, the, if anything, kind of the propaganda campaign, the fear mongering that they were very much a part of has been incredibly effective. Unfortunately, people are very nervous about going out. People are very nervous about going to the pub. Not everyone, of course. And I think the longer that the easing goes on and the, you know, the longer the pubs are open, people will start to come out a little bit. But that's, if anything, you know, more concerning at this point, not just for businesses, but as Alice says, for public life in general, you know, these, these miserable people who act as if, well, you know, you can drink at home, you can watch the football at home. The thing that's missing there is other people. Um, is society, is community, is spontaneity, is, you know, and it's all of that which has been completely denied. And also I think it's worth to say it's because all of social life was shut down, I think it makes people far more atomized, far more kind of barracked by the fear-mongering messages that they're presented with because they don't have those public spaces where people can kind of thrash things out, talk about things for themselves, feel a bit more comfortable in one another's company, whereas at the moment we've been encouraged to feel very nervous in one another's company. So what's so strange is that there's such a disjoint between these kind of doomsday predictions and what is actually going on. And if anything, that's a big shame for the moment, just not only for the hospitality sector, for pubs, which are really going to struggle, but also for for social life, which is, which, you know, it's one of the least appreciated things about the lockdown is the fact that the hit it's just had on people interacting in, in public space. And that's something that we definitely need to bring back. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.